Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Buddy Holly Ben Hur Space Monkey Space Monkey Let's Go Crazy <laughs> Hello again and welcome to episode 70 of We Didn't Start the Fire the history podcast that recklessly adopts Billy Joel's hit song as our marching orders to the biggest headlines heroes and villains of the late 20th century I'm Katie Puckrick I am Tom Fordyce Tom how did we get to where we are today? Billy thinks it might have something to do with space monkeys. Katie, I'm getting mixed messages here. Do you want space <laughs> or do you want a monkey around? I, I'll take whatever you got on offer. Now, I always get mixed up when I hear space monkeys because I think about sea monkeys. Oh, yeah. Do you know sea monkeys? Are they, they come in the little packets when you're a kid. They are desiccated brine shrimp that you can reanimate by adding water. And they were sold from the back of the comic books that I read as a child. And they showed these like sweet little long-limbed pot-bellied critters that lived <laughs> underwater and wore crowns on their heads oh. because they ruled their underwater kingdom and they had sea monkey babies. So anyway, when I first heard we were going to be doing space monkeys, I got all excited because I thought it was going to be brine shrimp. But it turns out maybe this is even more interesting. Even more interesting, Katie, we are talking about two particular monkeys, a rhesus monkey named Abel and a squirrel monkey named Miss Baker, who on the 28th of May in 1959 returned to Earth, Katie, aboard the Jupiter rocket, marking one of the very first times that a monkey had been into space. I can't believe I'm saying these words. A monkey had been into space and returned alive. Is that enough for us? Well, that's pretty, 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 pretty good. There's also a few other monkeys in this lineup. Don't don't forget Ham the Astro Chimp. What about Albert's one, two, three, four, five, and six, Katie? <laughs> so many monkeys, so little time. <laughs> Luckily, Katie, there is a man alongside us who can steer us through this monkey madness, and that is Dr. Stuart Clark, the astrophysicist, journalist, and broadcaster. Welcome, Stuart. Hi, Tom. Thanks. Hi, Katie. Thanks Hello. so much for having me on. There are a number of images, Stuart, that Katie and I have uh, seen in the course of our research for this program. And with each one, I have two very contrasting emotions. The first is a sort of little, oh, it looks sweet. And the second one is, oh, no, what happened to them? 
Uh, exactly. That is the conflict. That's almost like the fascination of it. You want to see these creatures and in a way you want to see them doing these heroic things um, and paving the way for humans. But also you can't you can't get over the fact that you don't want to subject them to this. You just want to take them home and pet them. Absolutely. Was there always the idea that man was going to successfully venture into outer space and beyond? Did scientists actually think that it was possible to put a human into outer space, or were they just kind of busking it with critters? They were busking it. I mean, the impulse to do that and to see if you could do that, to put somebody into space, I think has always been there. I mean, you can go back to the 17th century and the great um, German astronomer, Johannes Kepler, he um, wrote about imagining great voyages through the sky and uh, to other planets and things like that. So we've always imagined doing it. The question was whether you actually could do it. And as balloon experiments had shown, the really high altitude balloon experiments, you, things got quite difficult up there, extreme cold, radiation, sores, you know, and so it was never very clear um, whether you could put living things into space. Uh, but as soon as you started launching rockets and going higher and higher and flight coming along in the beginning of the 21st century, it's just so natural to think, can we put people into space? So this whole idea of putting primates into space orbit actually starts quite a bit earlier, Stuart. So this is where we're introduced to Albert, who at this point is just Albert. He's not Albert 1 because we don't know that Albert 2, 3, 4, 5 and 6 are going to follow. He's a rhesus macaque and he is launched in 1948, 39 miles up into the sky on a V2 rocket. Exactly. So at the end of the Second World War... Uh, the Americans had instituted something called Operation Paperclip, and that was to spirit out of Germany the the rocket scientist Werner von Braun that had been responsible for the the V2 uh, rockets, and they started experimenting and reflying these V2s. And so in the top of the rocket, you have to have the nose cone because it needs to be aerodynamic. But there's no other reason for having that, just the aerodynamics. So there's a big space there at the top of the rocket that you could start imagining putting things. (laughs) Um, So, of course, in the war, that was explosives. Now you're not putting explosives in that nose cone. So so what do you do? So you start doing physics experiments and you start sort of measuring air pressure and things like that. Potpourri. Uh, you could put potpourri in there as well. I'm sure some of the animals would have um, quite you know, liked that, calm them down a bit. Um, and then, of course, it becomes quite, it's quite soon, if you're doing sort of science experiments, you start thinking of biological experiments. And so you start imagining what are the kinds of things uh, or the kind of animals that you could send and what would you have to do to keep them safe. And I think that is an important aspect of all of this is that the although there are as i'm sure we'll talk about a number of tragedies um the primary purpose of this was to keep the animals safe um and to try and see how you could launch living things and bring them back uh, in a healthy condition were they just secret secret squirrel keeping it within the lab um and if they were secret why was that yeah they 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 weren't they weren't widely publicized in advance, but then a lot of this 
wasn't widely publicized the rocket launches and because a lot of it was all, to, all also to do with um you know, ballistics and missiles and and things like that uh, and so it wasn't so much you know, top secret never to be discussed um it was just these early launches were just things that the that the engineers were doing um to see you know what would happen and to learn how to uh you know how to have living things travel up in rockets they aren't particularly happy endings for the first few alberts are they albert who is Albert I, he suffocates during his flight. Then we have Albert II, or Albert II, I'm not sure the correct way of flagging that one up, but Albert II, who survives the flight, Stuart, and then dies on impact after his parachute fails. Oh. Albert III, Albert III, his V2 explodes about 10 kilometres up in the sky. Oh. Albert IV, Albert IV, he's killed on impact when his parachute fails again, but they keep sending them up. Yeah, and this is the you know, this is the heartbreaking bit about it, and this is the difficult thing when you when when we talk about it in those kind of statistical terms. Um, I think one of the things that eases it slightly for me is that these early um, animals that were sent up were actually anaesthetized. Um, so, and it's also the fact that they weren't just they weren't just sort of plucked from the zoo or something like that, and you know, just thrown in a rocket. They actually went through a training program to decide which were the sort of the calmest of the monkeys, which were so you know they were first put in small containers to see that you know if they would panic or how long they'd be happy in those kind of containers and and then they were selected for the flights from those kinds of things that's the thing Stuart I'm trying to get my head around the irony of scientists choosing the most intelligent lovely compliant easily trainable good natured animals and then subjecting them to near death and death experiences I I I get what you're saying and again I sort of fall back on this idea that the scientists did not send them out knowing they were going to die um, they sent them out in the hope and expectation having done everything they thought they could to try to bring them back alive so the first thing was to try and make the capsules for them uh, you know air- airtight so that they wouldn't run out of oxygen and things like that and they went through several different iterations before they ever launched one to try and make that um, happen before we get to the cute uh, astronauts the the chimps the macaques uh, were there other animals that were used yeah the first the first animals that were ever sent out were, were fruit flies I mean we probably all did um, experiments at school on fruit flies and for some obscure reason which um, my biology now escapes me. I think there's something about the genetics of a fruit fly that's a little bit similar to humans, something like that. Um, so yes, fruit flies were sent up first, and and this was the thing. Um, nobody knew what the environment of space was going to be like, and so you tried to send them up higher and higher, uh, and also. The acceleration is very, very difficult. So we're on on the Earth. We're pulled down by the Earth's gravity, which is a form of acceleration, and we're pulled down, and we feel very comfortable in in one g of acceleration. These rockets that were launching, um, you know, they were pulling you know, three to five g's and more. 
And uh, I mean, some of the Russian dogs, for example, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, they were put into centrifuges to test them uh, and train them uh, for these high G maneuvers. And some of them were perfectly um, happy up to 10 G. So from that point of view, the rocket launch itself from the G forces aspect was a bit of a walk in the park. Um, But so you try and do it quickly. You know, these first flights were like 10, 15 minutes. And and, uh, so that's the idea. It's 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 not a long thing. The trouble was that there were unanticipated things. So these parachute failures, these were taking place because you're trying to parachute down from a height much larger than you've ever used a parachute before. So there's just not enough air density there to fully inflate the parachute to start with. And then when you do hit the denser air, um, the force of that opening the parachute just pulls it to pieces. And so it's kind of back to the drawing board, make a stronger parachute uh, and then try again. Um, Now, there's an argument for whether you should have done all of that testing before you put a living thing on there, you know. But I think that's an argument that we see from our perspective now, um, you know, in 2022 with much more sensitivity to animal rights and and things like that, um, which perhaps wasn't so obvious to them 70 years ago or so. There are a couple of happier aspects of this, Katie, that I read a sentence in my research for this, which may be my favourite single sentence in all the stuff that we've read for We Didn't Start the Fire. And that sentence is as follows. Albert VI, along with 11 mouse crewmates... (laughs) That just sounds like the setup for the next (laughs) Disney franchise. His brave mouse crewmates. All in little caps, matching jackets. I do like that. And that begs the question, why was a particular animal chosen Mm. to be a critter astronaut. So you mentioned Laika, the Russian dogs that were the canine cosmonauts. And then, of course, the Americans had the primates. Uh, Was there a method to the madness? Yeah, there's a number of reasons, actually. One of them is um, that the size of the nose cone of those early rockets isn't very big. So you're trying to choose small animals that will comfortably fit um, into them. And also, um, you don't just put them in there and let them flail around in, in general. The sort of the monkeys, you certainly didn't. Uh, you know, you had to build little acceleration couches for them and put them in little spacesuits and uh, and things like that. The mice were generally left in um, containers. And uh, the interesting little story on the mice is, is that um, two of the mice that were sent up on one floor One was very enterprising when it got into weightlessness and it found a little crack in the side of the capsule and held onto it. So it's, it, it stayed quite stable for the whole flight and then like landed and it's like, yeah, no big deal. Um, it's, it's, it's mate who was in there as well didn't find one of those. So it flailed around, you know, for the for the few minutes that it was in weightlessness. But it's quite diligently recorded. Um that this was a concern to the scientists because they saw, uh, you know, the behaviour consistent with distress um, yeah. and, you know, uh, and, and things like that. Um, and how in, were they monitoring these mice? Did they had a camera on it? Cameras, yes, cameras and electrodes, you know, for the, especially for the chimps, the electrodes to uh, do uh, respiration heart rate and, and, and those um, kinds of things. Now, in terms of the Russians choosing dogs rather than um, chimps and primates, and I think the Americans primarily chose the chimps and the other primates because, of course, their similarities to human beings. So it was very, very clear that this was 
this was rehearsal for human flight. And so the more the animal resembled a human, mm. the more you could test your designs for things like acceleration couches and the kinds of seats and spacesuits that you were going to be using. Because again, all of this is completely unknown. The kind of temperatures that you're going to encounter, the radiation that you're going to encounter, um, how disorientating being in weightlessness is. Remember, in a rocket flight, you're going from extreme gravity at the at the launch, you know, three or more g, up to complete weightlessness. So you you can't have more extremes than that. Uh, and so uh, they wanted something as human-like. Now, the, the Russians took a different approach. They had a very long history of biological experimentation with dogs. Um, you know, the famous Pavlov's dog experiment oh, and yeah. psychological responses and things like that. So it's very natural for them to think of dogs. They had a lot of experience working with them in the lab. And so that's what they naturally went for. And they were also much easier to source because you just went out onto the streets of Moscow and picked up strays. And the interesting thing is when you read the reports from the scientists, they um, they suggest that the mongrels that they find on the streets are just a they're, a bit, they're hardier they're more adapted to tough environments they're just much much better than any of the purebreds that they might have uh, wanted to uh, use but i've got a suspicion that there was a bit of russian sort of ideology about this about taking dogs off the street you know and blasting them into space as heroes of the soviet well Union. they're the proletariat of the dog world <laughs> indeed indeed so we find ourselves meeting at this point Abel and Miss Baker. Abel is quite a different size to Miss Baker and comes from a different place. Yeah, they are. They they're very different, aren't they? Um, uh, she's one pound, or Miss Baker's one pound, I think, and um, Miss Abel is like seven pounds. So they're much, much. They're, they're very different, and they're treated differently. As, or some of the um, previous launches as well have treated pairs of monkeys very differently as well. So some are sat upright, some are laid down prone to see which is the best way for um, the body to react. And I suspect it's those experiments that meant that when humans were blasted into space, they were all sort of more prone positions in the in the capsule, so more lying, lying down. Um, but these are fantastic. Yeah, Miss Abel and Miss Baker, they survive into space. They actually get into space and then they splash down in the ocean and they're retrieved. And it's a huge um, achievement. So they, they, they actually do go, you know, way up uh, into space. Um, and so it's like something like 480 kilometers um, that they go up into space. They splash down um, about 2,400 kilometers downrange from where they launched. And so they became, they become international celebrities so at that point any any sort of pretense at keeping things quiet um, is gone completely on online you can find sort of old um, British Pathé news footage oh like on of, YouTube if you can find a clip of them yeah what, uh, answering questions well <laughs> it's, this is this is where it gets a little uncomfortable again right. because they put these big 
sort of metal waistbands around them so that they we, we, on a pole so they can like stand them up uh, for uh, photos and things like that okay. and it's very clear that these they're not enjoying this experience right. when they do that having survived that um, Miss Abel dies a few days later on the operating table when they're taking the electrodes um, that they implanted in her out it's a reaction to the anaesthetic that she was given Aww. which is such a shame but Miss Baker goes on to have the most extraordinary post-astronaut life. Uh, she's taken to the, uh, uh, the the Washington Zoo, I think it is, the f- uh, first of all. Uh, and she becomes, I mean, so famous. I mean, 100 letters a day at the sort of the height from school children writing to her. People come and see her all the time. Mm. Um, and then, uh, then she's married uh, in this ceremony oh. to um, to Big George, oh, and, every bride's dream, that isn't it? <laughs> uh, and it's and it's mentioned at the time. This is 1962, I think. It's mentioned at the time. She's a very modern lady, so she decides to keep her maiden name after the marriage. So she's forever known as Miss Baker. Um, sadly, Big George doesn't last um, too long. Uh, so then she's she's married again, um, and just to highlight um, how independent and modern she is, um, when the when the bridal veil is put on, that lasts all of a few moments before she rips that off. Right on. Um, and so uh, yeah, and but she she lived until she was twenty seven. She only died in in nineteen eighty four. And she holds the record as being the um, sort of longest-lived squirrel monkey, a dying age 27 in 1984. And uh, she's buried um, at the NASA Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And her grave is routinely, where we place flowers on a human's graves, people routinely place, even to this day, bananas oh. on her grave. Oh. Katie, I very much like the sound of Miss Baker. Um, apparently she was purchased in a pet shop in Florida with 25 others. But during testing, she showed, quote, intelligence, she was loving, and she had docile manners to the extent that they nicknamed her TLC. And her reward was to be shot into space where no doubt she suffered fear, terror, and scrambled brains. But she overcame it and lived a very long and happy life. Triumph over tragedy. So let's talk about Ham the Astro Chimp. What can you tell us about old Ham? Yeah, so he is he is absolutely fascinating and he's he's a key to all of this. So having proved that these living creatures could survive uh, as these are suborbital flights, all of these. So it's just a ballistic trajectory up for a few minutes into space and then back down again, but going ever higher. Uh, and you now have to uh, work out whether people can still function. Do you just survive it? Or is it a situation that you can actually adapt to and function in. And so Ham was taught uh, to press a button every time a light came on. Oh, he just got a little light electric shock in his feet if he didn't press the button. He got a banana pellet if he pressed the lever at the blue light flash, but then he got an electric shock. Yeah, so so th- this is sort of standard um, animal experimentation for the mid-20th century for all its um, ethical um, uh 
grey areas and uh, you know as I say things I'm sure he would not do now but it is interesting that he was being trained to do a job it wasn't just a question of can this animal passively sit there in outer space and survive he actually had to make that thing go yes exactly he had to he had to do something because that's that's the idea if you're going to send the human into space eventually you're going to want them to do things in space otherwise what's what's the point uh, and so this was the beginning of trying to work out how how badly it affected you know your senses and your cognition could you still function or did you just survive uh, and and he did so his reaction times were a little bit slower in space, um, but not by anything significant. I mean, incredible that he's in that traumatic and very confusing environment and he's still pushing the the switch. Flicking the switch. switch. Because I think in many ways, once you get over the the, the launch, and again, they weren't just put in a rocket and and blasted off. So they'd be put on, uh, the Russians certainly would put their dogs onto shaker tables and, you know, get them used to the kinds of vibrations and things like that that they were going to experience during flight. Mm. So it wasn't, uh, none of what happened to the animals was unknown or them encountering it for the first time. They were prepared as much as possible. Um, Although I did read that a scientist watching him in mid-flight on camera said he'd never seen such a look of terror on an animal's face. Can you describe, Stuart, what the capsules look like for these monkeys? Because I've seen a picture of Abel. So Abel, after her unfortunate demise, is, I'm not sure what the phrase is here, taxidermied, stuffed, um, propped up. And you can see her in what looks a little bit like, Katie, that scene in... um, Clockwork Orange? Yeah, a little bit like that. A mixture (laughs) between that and The Empire Strikes Back where Han Solo gets frozen or whatever it is that happens to him. He's sort of of in this silvery thing, Stuart, Mm. and it looks pretty uncomfortable. He's... Yeah, they're, 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 they're strapped in. Um, so that um, movement is quite minimal. His face is sticking out. His arms and feet are sticking out. Yes. But everything else is hidden. Yes, and and so and that that's a it's a big sort of encasing around him, and a lot of that is, is it's like a big suit of armor, really. Um, so in effect, it's for his own protection. It's also to have sort of standardized size capsules and components that you that the engineers know how exactly to fit into these things because you're going to have to keep it absolutely stable you can't have it flying around the capsule for the monkey's safety and things like that so again these are the kinds of things these pictures that you look at and it it does it does make you feel a little strange um, you know about confining the monkeys in this but again the only way I can sort of get my head around it is to say that they were trained to know that those were uh, you know that it's, it's not that you, you don't just grab a monkey off the street strap it into a capsule and throw it on a rocket you gradually acclimatize it, it and acclimatize it mm. and 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 you don't use the ones that don't adapt to it well mm. so they, they go through this sort of astronaut selection process and I think one of the interesting things that uh, that to come out of this is that you're actually doing psychology of the animals. You're realizing that all these different animals have different personalities and respond in different ways to different things. So 
you've known and the reason you're using these animals is from a biological perspective they're a bit similar to humans but through all of this work that's going on you're starting to realize psychologically that they're similar to humans as well and so one of the things that i think comes out of this work is the modern perception the seeds of the modern perception about animals as personalities as individuals you know with with rights that should be considered and respected sure i sort of assumed that after man landed on the moon that no more animals would be sent into space because we knew that humans could do it and they could survive that doesn't seem to have been the case no there are still animals flown um on sort of biological experiments um because there's still a lot of unknowns about how um living things react to the conditions in space um microgravity is just such a different environment that the better we get at understanding the way living things work in general the more we want to understand how they work in microgravity it could be for example that there are um new ways of synthesizing drugs or new ways of affecting illnesses um based in space that we might want to consider in the future it's also the fact that sooner or later we're going to start wanting to um live on the moon or take holidays in space and sooner or later someone's going to want to take their pet with them and so what happens what happens at that point um so so yes biological experiments still take place um but not anywhere near the kind of level that they used to That seems like sort of a a a trivial goal to devote all of these technological resources to making happen. At one level it does sound Unless trivial. Unless you're Elon Musk. <laughs> But at one level it does sound trivial, doesn't it? But at another, this is just about extending the human environment into space. And we're not all going to want to behave like astronauts going into space. We're just going to want to behave like normal people right. and so there is going to come a point where we want to start moving and living and taking our pets with us and extending the human environment into outer space and ruining outer space for all the other creatures who already live there thank you you're welcome <laughs> only if we get it wrong you see one of the unanticipated benefits of the space race has been the environmental movement it's because it's only from space it's only on those trips that the astronauts took to the moon that you could see the earth as a whole and single thing the blue dot the blue dot exactly and 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 those images of the fragile beauty of our planet has helped drive the idea of environmentalism and from space being able to see the planet as a single whole thing means you can study it as a whole single system and that's why we have all these earth observation satellites in space now to monitor the health of planet earth and help us avoid climate catastrophes and in learning from those kinds of ways that we can apply the rules of space to a better environmental situation on earth so as we move into space ourselves going to the moon or going to mars we can have these conversations about ethically what do we want to do there what's accept- 
acceptable to do there? How much do we want to leave that's pristine? And how much do we want to change to our advantage? So I'm, I'm an optimist about the future, but these are conversations that we must be having now before it's possible to do those kinds of things. I like how it's really just down to a matter of perspective, you know, the perspective of being in outer space and understanding the vulnerability of our living conditions and also the majesty. And that's the thing that puts a tiger in our tank to try and take care of ourselves. Absolutely. And we can look at all these other planets and they are beautiful in their own way, but they are desolate you know and yet the earth this glorious rich fertile realm it just underlines how important our planet is and how fragile the balance is what was the reaction like at the time because we obviously have a, a quite a strong perspective on it now Stuart in the American public were there a substantial number of people who felt uncomfortable even at the time or was there a different feeling about it? There were people that felt uncomfortable about it at the time, definitely. And uh, these concerns were raised. Um, and I think it's worth mentioning as well. And this is where this is where it always seems strange how human beings sometimes behave. You know, you have you have stories of the scientists that were working with these animals as well. You know, getting extremely attached to them. And uh, yes, one of the Russian dogs um, ran away. I mean, so would I, you know, the day before the launch. Mm. Um, and the scientists were really concerned because where they were in the, you know, out in the wild, uh, there were wolves and they thought the dog wouldn't last against the wolves. Uh, but they're putting them on the rockets and firing them into space. But again, never with the intention to kill them. Uh, and there was one uh, one scientist who also um, took, uh, took one of the dogs home. It was uh, one of the successful dogs. Um, that was Dejik, I think her name was. She got taken home. The, the scientist couldn't stand to see her go on a second flight and maybe not come back. So, uh, oh, I was going to ask you what happened to the surviving animals if they weren't taken home as pets. Yeah, some of them, uh, many of the American monkeys, um, they seem to end up in, in, in zoos and um, uh, sort of places for the, for the public to see them and uh, by all accounts live reasonably comfortable lives in captivity. Um, others, I'm sh you know, especially the Russian dogs, I think they returned quite often to the labs um, and carried on, you know, working with them there. And it was only really after the you know, Yuri Gagarin and John Glenn and their orbital flights um, that the use of uh, you know animals in space started to tail off. Knowing what we know now, Stuart, was there any? alternative to sending animals to space and paving the way for human space travel? I'm not sure there was. I wrestle with this. Uh, and I'm not sure that I'm, I'm not sure there was. I think I, I think with modern sensibilities, what we would probably do now is to test things more thoroughly before putting animals on. Um, but that was also. I, but I think that comes from the point of view that in the twentieth century, that sort of engineering mindset was always build it, break it, build a better one, break it. In a sense, that mindset carried over when they started putting animals on uh, on these missions. But 
no, I, I really don't think there was any way we could have done this apart from risking humans in this way. So maybe, Casey, we should rebrand these, these space monkeys as space heroes, totally. as space pioneers, because without them, there probably is no manned space flight. There is no. no landing on the moon. No, there isn't. God bless you, space monkeys, and God bless you, Dr. Stuart Clark, for telling us so many interesting things about them. I would also like to heavily plug your most recent book, which you very kindly brought a copy in, Beneath the Night, um, which is all about mankind's relationship with the stars going from the present day all the way back to the cave paintings. Yes, indeed. It was a fascinating book to um, research and work on and just realise how connected we have made ourselves to the night sky. Um, since before written records began, as we go back and we see the cave paintings that look like constellations and you know the first pieces of written material in the world coming from Mesopotamia, um, they're all about the stars. Well, the night sky was the Netflix of its day. It was indeed. What else were you going to look at when you wanted to kick back and get cozy? It did. was. Indeed it was. And this helped, you know, with the urge to one day try to touch it. And these great, you know, animals that we've talked about today were the first living beings to achieve that dream of actually touching the night sky. Will no one think of the human sperm that was sent into outer space? What about their heroic effort? <laughs> I was probably, yeah, probably doing a lot of work trying not to think about it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's a moonshot. <laughs> <laughs> Stuart, thank you so much. It's my thank pleasure. You. Thank you. <laughs> Katie, I found myself charmed by the tales of Abel and Miss Baker and Ham, and it comes, therefore, as no surprise to me that Space Monkey has rolled on in popular culture. Space Monkey were a band from the North of England signed to Factory Records, I believe, in the 1990s. Space Monkey is also a song by the slightly whingy indie rock band Placebo, but I believe you have found something far superior to Brian Molko. <laughs> I've struck gold here, Tom. Ray Allen and the Embers have written the be-all, end-all Space Monkey song. It's called Ham the Space Monkey, and I don't know how historically accurate <laughs> it is. I think they may have taken some liberties with Ham's actual personality and the fact that he has a cod British accent and is a little bit effete. But generally, you get the gist that he was a very important character in the development of man's mission into outer space. It's quite a little groove on here, Katie. I find that it has almost a Calypso-esque flair, which makes sense because Ham is a monkey who was trained to operate levers in outer space with banana pellets. <laughs> he probably would respond well to a tropical beat. I think so. I see what you mean about the accent, Katie. Um, I'm not sure the real Ham would have had that accent having grown up in Florida, but I like the accent all the same. Me too. Well, thank you, Ray Allen, and thank you to all the Embers, however many of you there may be. Although I do find it slightly sad, Katie, that the Embers have brought this fire to 
a close rather than started it. Yeah, it was tortured, but I see where you're going with that. <laughs> <laughs> so next time on We Didn't Start the Fire Hole, it's going to be a good one. Mafia. Mafia. Which mafia? Are you a made man, Katie? Uh, I'm ready to take a dirt nap if I'm not. If you cannot wait a full week until we bring the episode to you, let me recommend that you have a cheeky little listen to dot com Reddit land. .com is Crowd Network's new text strand, and it's you, Katie, it's you. Yes, what gave it away? .com lifts the veil on the people of the internet. Series 2 is about the complex metaverse of the social media website Reddit. We go deep into the people behind the biggest headlines of the century, like the GameStop short squeeze or the shocking leak of hundreds of private photos of celebrities in the buff. And once you've finished all six episodes, you can enter the world of Wikipedia in Series 1. We got you covered. Katie, you're too demure to say this, so I shall say it for you. It is a totally immersive and fascinating listen. Just search for .com, that is D. O-T-C-O-M and subscribe now. See you next time, Mafia. Be there. Or be prepared to take a dirt nap. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.